0: Welcome to the CSIS Cogad Asia podcast, where we think deeply and reflect on policy in Asia. I'm your host, Will Coulson. In this episode, we explore China's intelligence services. (music) Moviegoers around the world know that the CIA, the NSA, the KGB, MI6, and Mossad by name. Many could even draw out an org chart for some of the agencies. That's no surprise. Spy stories are fertile ground for storytelling, and authors from Clancy to Le Car realize that. China's rise on the geopolitical stage means that it is included more and more in summer blockbuster stories. But despite China's elevated importance, it is still very difficult to find reliable information about the People's Republic of China's intelligence services. China's distinct party-army-state structure and high levels of secrecy mean that even getting the basics about China's ministries responsible for foreign intelligence collection and espionage is a challenge. We asked CSIS Freeman Chair on China Studies, Chris Johnson, a former China analyst at the Central Intelligence Agency, why
1: understanding China's intelligence services is important. Well, I think uh, like any other intelligence service in the world, uh, China's intelligence services pose unique uh, challenges to U.S. security interests, both domestically and abroad. Um, the Chinese services are highly organized, uh, but also Sort of um, highly stovepiped uh, in their in their operation, and I think there's a lot of misunderstanding, frankly, these days uh, about how they operate, what changes have taken place. Um, you know, most fields of study, when it comes to China, have been very dynamic in terms of keeping up with uh, the rapid change in Chinese society, uh, the change in China's global position, and so on. The study of Chinese intelligence services, as much as with the study of the Chinese military, in my opinion, has sort of failed to keep pace um, with those changes and what change those, what impact those societal and other economic other changes are having um, on those institutions. It's a very difficult area, obviously, also to understand because of the opacity of the system. And the services, obviously, are probably the most opaque uh, element of the system.
0: To get more insight, we sought out one of the world's leading experts on China's intelligence services.
2: My name is Peter Mattis. I'm a fellow in the China program at the Jamestown Foundation, where I previously edited the China Brief. I'm currently working on two manuscripts related to Chinese intelligence. One, the historical reference guide um, with a co-author named Matt Brazil, and a second, which is compiling my previous writing on Chinese intelligence from its politics, to its operations, to its to its role to the role of understanding China today through its intelligence services um, that will be out later this year.
0: Peter Mattis has played a leading role in shedding light on China's intelligence services in non-classified or open source writing. Who are China's key intelligence services? Mattis identifies the Ministry of State Security and the Ministry of Public Security as lead on the civilian side.
2: Principal intelligence organizations for the People's Republic of China are first the Ministry of State Security and then there's a a separate military intelligence system. Um, The Ministry of State Security was formed in 1983 to conduct both intelligence operations against foreign targets, as well as to coordinate and execute um, counterintelligence and counterespionage investigations. So it has both a foreign and a domestic role. So much like the, the Soviet bloc intelligence services, like the East German Stasi or, or the Russian KGB. There's also the Ministry of Public Security, which is usually thought of as being sort of like China's FBI, but it has like the FBI, it does have a broad remit to to conduct investigations overseas or to have law enforcement liaison or other types of exchanges with with foreign services. And since August 2012, it's been relatively clear that the Ministry of Public Security has taken on more national security functions in terms of counterterrorism and conducting investigations of corrupt officials overseas that are that make it you know, it may be a law enforcement agency but it's also doing work abroad that resembles intelligence.
0: On the other hand, the military branch of intelligence collection under the PLA is in flux. On the military intelligence system,
2: it it's currently undergoing a massive change because of the, the military reforms that were announced on November 26, twenty fifteen by Xi Jinping. But the, under the old system that was, that was in the general staff department, there was the second department, or two PLA, which conducted sort of overt and clandestine human intelligence. It had an analysis component, and it was also responsible for a lot of technical sensors as well as um, imagery intelligence. The third department conducted signals intelligence, and the fourth department was responsible for electronic intelligence and radar and electronic warfare. The system itself, however, is is in flux. Hence, changes are are taking place, and it's not entirely clear how everything is going to shake out. For example, the imagery component of the second department, or 2PLA, um, centered around the Aerospace Reconnaissance Bureau, is being moved over to the newly created Strategic Support Force. The creation of a ground forces headquarters presumably will take some part of 2PLA along with it to be the the ground forces intelligence department Um, because under the previous system, the pre-reform system, it was the general staff department also served as the ground forces headquarters. So now with the separation between what is the joint staff department and the ground forces, presumably some of the old resources within the general staff department will be moved over. And similarly, as you go down the list of the military military regions becoming theater commands, it's going to shift some of the other sort of tactical collection along with it.
0: Mattis argues that one-to-one analogies with Western intelligence agencies are not helpful for understanding the Chinese intelligence services.
2: When you're looking at the system, though, the Western analogies are not really that helpful. You know, if, if you call the MSS china cia you miss its huge domestic component because the ministry of state security is not just a ministry in beijing but it's also provincial departments and municipal bureaus that run pretty much from the center in beijing down to the provincial level and down to local levels so you have potentially thousands of people in the system that have sort of local responsibilities and not necessarily national responsibilities more helpful to think of to think of Western analogs with parts of the PLA. For example, you could say that the old Second Department or 2 PLA is, is equivalent to DIA, and you could think of 3 PLA and and 4 PLA the third and fourth departments as being closely related to the National Security Agency. And the other the other reason why it's not particularly helpful to use Western analogies is that in in the West, the intelligence services form a major component of each country's capability to produce clandestine power or to conduct covert action. And while the Chinese intelligence services do have some responsibility for this, China also has a a whole set of separate agencies that are primarily responsible for influencing and shaping events abroad.
0: To understand China's intelligence apparatus today, we asked Peter to share the origins of China's modern intelligence system. To get a handle on this, we have to go back back to the late 1920s, and a very different time in China. The story starts in the early days of the Chinese Civil War between the Nationalist Party, Kuomintang, and the Chinese Communist Party.
2: All of the Chinese intelligence and security services, whether it's the Ministry of State Security, the Ministry of Public Security, or the military intelligence system, trace their origins to what was called the Central Committee's Special Operations Work Department, or better known as simply the Special Department in Chinese, the Ta And this was founded in late 1927, early 1928, as a response to surprises that occurred in 1927. On April 12th in Shanghai and July 15th in Wuhan, the governments of Chiang Kai-shek and the Chinese Nationalist Party, KMT, and Wang Jingwei's separate KMT-related government in Wuhan down on the communists and basically just destroyed killed and, and destroyed a lot of the urban networks that the, that the Chinese Communist Party had built up over time and well there had been some discussion within the Communist Party about creating an intelligence organization they had decided that if they did that that would be a signal of hostility to the, the KMT and create a confrontation long before they were ready for it at this you know, up until 1927 the Guomindang the and the chinese communist party had been functioning under what was called the first united front and had been sensibly allies in in trying to to either sort of bring the war build an accommodation with warlords and bring them over or conquer them and in this early days, they were most successful in in getting inside the KMT's intelligence and security apparatus. Um, One of their senior people was the personal secretary to the KMT's head of intelligence, Xuanzang. And between 1927 and 1931, they basically saved the Chinese Communist Party's underground networks in the Chinese cities. And in 1931 they probably saved most of the party um, there were three principal people operating inside the KMT uh, named Hu Di, Qian Zhuang Fei, and Li Kanol and there was a very senior um, defector named Gu Shun Zhang who was a director at head within this within the special department and he possessed knowledge essentially of all of the safe houses and a lot of the identities of, of senior CCP leaders and he was captured in Wuhan and a telegram was sent to Xuanzang in Nanjing where his personal secretary didn't recall him back to the office and instead sort of sidelined the cable this gave the CCP about 18 18 hours head start from starting to clean out its, its people and move them out of the cities. so people like and Enlai probably had their lives saved by these early operations. And the special department more or less changed as it was moved into the countryside and then on the long march and into Yan'an where it became what is known as the social affairs department. But its alumni essentially took on roles across the CCP intelligence apparatus that continued into the 60s and 70s um, and possibly even into the 80s depending on when people died. For example, Qian Zhuang Fei, who was the personal secretary to Xuanzang, became the deputy director of the Central Military Commission Second Department, which was the precursor to the military intelligence system as we now know it. This, this um, Central Military Commission Second Bureau was founded in 1931, and this is it was sort of the very direct precursor to two PLA and three PLA to, of of today's world, um, and one of its um, senior officers, a man named Liu Guangfu, would actually become director of two PLA in the late 1970s and early 80s. But again, this was this was an office that was founded with expertise that was that was built within the sec- within the special department. And so when you look at, say, the literature on Chinese intelligence, the, the history been written, many of them have actually been written by PLA officers. And they spend more time writing about the special department than they do about some of the later elements of the PLA.
0: If key leaders like Zhou Enlai, who later served as the first premier of the PRC, owed their lives to the special department, you get a sense of why the culture of secrecy still surrounds the party and in intelligence services activities today. The modern chain of command for China's MSS and MPS still reflects this opacity. As
2: for who these organizations report to, uh, the Ministry of State Security and the Ministry of Public Security report to the Political Legal Commission structure that runs from the center down down to the localities. Uh, and, it's not, and no one is entirely clear about what kinds of decisions are made in the Political Legal Commission. That affect MSS and MPS operations. It's just that this is where the lines of political authority exist. The way they, the way, in particular, the Ministry of State Security feeds intelligence into the system is through the membership of its minister on several of the leading small groups, such as the Preserving Stability small group, the Foreign Affairs leading small group, um, pre- presumably on the relatively. New State Security Commission.
0: How about for the PLA?
2: On the PLA side, since the early since the early nineteen fifties, the military intelligence system has run up to a deputy chief of the general staff, who is one of is often one of two PLA representatives on on leading small groups, and this person has often had a close relationship with either senior PLA officers on the Central Military Commission or with the political leadership themselves. Um, now the most notable example of this is Guang Kai in the 1990s, who had a very, very close relationship with Jiang Zemin and was reportedly crucial to Jiang's ability to understand what was going on inside the military. A more notable, perhaps a more important example is Xu Xin, who also held this position under Deng Xiaoping, and he had served with Deng Xiaoping in the 1930s and 1940s in the Eighth Road Army. So they had a relationship going back you know, more than 40 years. But how reform within the PLA is going to sort of reshape how this works remains remains anyone's guess. Um, in part because some functions seem to still exist within the Joint Staff Department and some functions seem to be moved over to the Strategic Support Force.
0: Chris Johnson argues that Xi Jinping's emphasis on military credentials and the structural shakeup he initiated reflects a shift backwards in civil-military relations, to the PLA being the party's armed wing.
1: I think Xi Jinping, unlike his predecessor, Hu Jintao, takes a sort of very traditional, I guess you could say, approach to how he thinks about civil-military relations in particular. Uh, one thing that was quite striking was uh, when he was sort of first emerging as the designated successor, so after the, uh, the 17th Party Congress in 2007, uh, when Xinhua, the official news service, released his official biography as one of the Politburo Standing Committee members, uh, suddenly military appointments that he had had throughout his career, usually as a provincial official, you might be dual-hatted as uh, a political commissar of a military district, things like this, that all started to show up um, in a way that signaled to me that uh, they were trying to amp up his military credentials. Um, He is really the only civilian senior leader who had any kind of military role. He actually was an active duty PLA officer very briefly when he was serving as a secretary uh, to the defense minister in the early 1980s, Gung Biao. And so I think his view is a much more empowered uh, commander in chief. And we see this with the massive structural reorganization that he has pushed through in the last several months, declaring himself now commander in chief, a whole new title uh, within the system. Um, obviously, the shakeup in the way that the military is now aligned structurally, where everything is sort of coming out of the Central Military Commission, rather than the previous model, which was an old Soviet general staff driven model. And so in terms of political influence, uh, that means that that independent fiefdom, if you will, of the general staff has been diminished significantly. And the C.M.C. Which Xi Jinping chairs, and which, by the way, is the party's arm in the military, uh, is the stronger one. And I think that's really um, the main change that we've seen under him is a re-emphasis of the PLA's role as the armed wing of the Communist Party, not the national military of China. So
0: how does China's unique system, the party army state, shape priorities for intelligence collection and espionage efforts? Peter Mattis makes an important distinction between the priority for Western governments, like the United States, and for China's Communist Party leadership, China's focus on state security.
2: I think if you were to think about the the Chinese Communist system and the relationship between the party army and the state, as overlapping as those are, probably the the single biggest feature that shapes how the intelligence organizations work is the idea of state security that rather than national security um, when in the west when we talk about national security we're often talking about the protection of borders and interests. whereas state security is much more of a a protective uh, or an internally protective perspective meaning that you are trying to protect the political stability of the system and so you're evaluating foreign intelligence, not necessarily first from how can I support a policymaker, but from the perspective of how does this affect the threats that could undermine the state and undermine the party. There's actually a very good article by um, in Jamestown's China Brief by Samantha Hoffman last November that sort of spells out some of the the features of, of state security. In the modern context, but it really is, um, for lack of a better word, a, a more paranoid version of national security. That is, first looking at the threats and how foreign, how foreign decisions threaten the state.
0: Chris Johnson agrees that the Chinese leadership's emphasis on state security and the resulting internal focus for its intelligence community is a crucial point that affects policy priorities.
1: Yeah, I think I would agree very much with uh, Peter's point of view on that. Uh, My own sense is that the Ministry of State Security in particular uh, probably spends 80% of its day worried about uh, domestic social stability threats or other challenges from dissident groups um, and so on or what the regime considers to be dissident groups uh, than it does about its what you might call its primary mission, or what we would think its primary mission would be, would which would be to um, engage in foreign espionage collection, and even the other elements of China's intelligence community, uh, the military elements of China's intelligence community, certainly the uh, the intelligence uh, elements of the Ministry of Public Security, they also devote a tremendous amount of attention and resources to this. And you know, this is the classic dilemma that we see for the regime: uh, is you know we. I think under Xi Jinping in particular, we see this strange uh, dichotomy between a China that externally looks very confident and strong and uh, assertive and in, in, in active, um, and a China that domestically is very insecure, scared, weak, uh, et cetera. I think the other part uh, that makes this really challenging is the impact that the anti-corruption campaign in particular has had on the security services. They've been a major target of Xi Jinping's uh, anti-corruption campaign. And so as such, I think there's a certain desire after almost two years of tumult for the services to prove their loyalty and prove their effectiveness uh, to Xi Jinping. So in some ways, I think that internal security mission has become even more of a focus for the services. We see this with the extra territorial renditions of various people, booksellers, corrupt officials, you know, this whole thing. This is becoming par for the course for China's intelligence services, and that's a big shift in how they operate.
0: Xi Jinping's well-publicized anti-corruption campaign has definitely affected China's clandestine service organizations. Despite that, Peter Mattis says the true impact on operational tempo is challenging to assess.
2: As far as some um, you know, thinking about issues like Xi Jinping's anti-corruption campaign, that has affected sort of the whole swath of the Chinese Party-State from the top, you know, whether it's someone like Wu Xiong in the PLA or Zhou Kong um, on the civilian side, and running all the way through the system you know, the, the Ministry of State Security and probably public security have not really been exempt from this. But it's not necessarily clear how it would affect any of any of their ongoing operations. There's always been a certain amount of corruption in the system, you know, that when, when it's difficult to move money or when it's difficult to operate companies in Hong Kong or or find other conduits in and out of China, services are one of the few places where there are exemptions made, where there are easy channels to move move things in and out. In fact, the last Minister of State Security, Xu Yongyue, was ousted in August 2007 because of his connection to a corruption scandal. Um, Similarly, you have the Beijing State Security Bureau's Director, Liang Ke, a Vice Minister named Ma Jian, and a vice minister who seems to have gone up and down but somehow survived named Chio-jin who have all been affected by corruption in the security system or ousted but there's really no way to get a sense of the scope and and how how it has an effect on operations um, in, in part because the tempo of what you could call the control case of Chinese intelligence the operational tempo against Taiwan not really changed. The cases we see are still the cases we see. And when you talk to to Taiwanese security officials, there's not a sense that rapprochement across the strait changed anything in terms of the dynamics of of what was going on.
0: And what elements of espionage tradecraft do the Chinese intelligence services use? In many ways, China's base goals and tactics are comparable.
2: I guess the way way that it would be best to answer this question about whether Chinese intelligence practice differ from Western intelligence practices or differ from Soviet or Russian intelligence practices is that it's better to start from a point of similarity and, and perhaps a good comparison would be military operations if you're conducting if you're using the military to do something or to or to fight you know, there are certain basic requirements first you have to be able to get a force to a particular area you have to be able to supply that force that force has to be able to deliver firepower to a target. You know, so there are certain sort of key elements that are going to be in common across military operations, you know, in all times and all places. And, but the org, but the military organizations themselves may differ in how they, how they organize or deliver those those components to successful military action. So at a very basic level, Chinese intelligence is. Is comparable in many many ways to sort of the, the stories of that we've heard from the Cold War about how intelligence services operate you know, the basics the basic purpose is similar you know that intelligence is collected and processed and analyzed and delivered to inform decision-makers um, you know whether those are internal security decision-makers whether those are, are the senior most policymakers with a broad swath of political Um, authorities. One of my my favorite definitions of Chinese intelligence was that intelligence is information to resolve specific decision-making problems. So that suggests that the Chinese are basically engaged
0: in the same endeavor. How does China's spy tradecraft differ from so-called Western techniques? Peter highlights a couple unique quirks in their operational tactics.
2: In terms of their intelligence tradecraft, they do have a few idiosyncrasies. Um, you know, for example, we've all heard of a dead drop—the idea that you would leave a package or you know, documents or a package of money or communications in some, you know, taped underneath a payphone in in a park or buried somewhere off the side of a road. The Chinese don't seem to have done that. They we don't have any examples of them doing that in the past, and we haven't seen it in the present. Um, similarly, one thing that they do do is that most meetings with the source that, we've, that we're aware of have usually involved two or more officers, That it's rarely an individual meeting with a with foreign source. And part of that may be that they don't trust their own officers to, to report accurately, Part of that may be a problem from the Cultural Revolution, when because of how tight the security was on operations, there was often no way to verify whether someone's contact with a foreigner was legitimate or whether it was something that warranted them being purged. And so the civilian intelligence apparatus basically fell apart during the Cultural Revolution because its security on On operations was so tight and the number of people that knew anything about them meant that if someone was accused of being a spy that there was no way for them to defend themselves I think one point that's worth noting about Chinese operations is that with only two, possibly three exceptions in the last 20 years every source that we are aware of that was recruited by Chinese intelligence was recruited inside China, not by an officer who was posted abroad at a foreign embassy or as a foreign businessman or some or any other feature, but that the people that were recruited went to China either to live or on travel and were approached and eventually recruited inside China. And their relationship with Chinese intelligence was head, was was hid by their traveling back and forth with some frequency. Another area where if you were to say there was a little bit of a difference is that there's a tradition in the West of, of wanting to get sort of our hands on the documents. The idea that we don't want a source to explain how the world works in a particular place. But we want documents from inside the government or inside the military to say, okay, what does this mean? And we collate those with other forms of intelligence to say, ah, this is, this is what we think the analysis says. There's a lot more comfort on the Chinese side in dealing with sources with secondhand access and patience to target um, people at both ends of their career, either before it starts, such as students. Or at the very end of their career, like retirees, as well as the willingness to go after people who have classmates or friends inside, inside a country's intelligence or security apparatus. You know, if you think about the espionage cases on Taiwan, there's maybe only one that you would have read about, and that a fellow named General Lo Xianzhe, that did not involve um, at least two Taiwanese being involved in the case. Often it was someone who traveled regularly to to the PRC or who was a businessman living in Shanghai or or Xiamen or something or somewhere else who was recruited either by by the Chinese military or by the MSF, who then went back to Taiwan to talk to their friends who worked in whatever government ministry or whatever office in the military and in some cases recruited those people and made introductions to Chinese intelligence and information was passed that way. Similarly, in the United States, two of the most notable people who have been recruited by Chinese intelligence, um, James Fondra and Greg Ferguson, who both worked at the Defense Department. One of them was unaware, and one of them did meet Chinese intelligence, but the primary person who had been recruited was a guy named Guo Taishan, who was a naturalized U.S. citizen and a Louisiana-based furniture salesman, business in China that took him regularly back and forth. And Guo Taishan met these people within the United States, talked with them, got information from them inside the United States. But he delivered that information back in China um, and was a primary, was really an intermediary rather than than the, the source.
0: Open source intelligence gathering also plays a part in China's intel work. And there are a couple of institutions set up specifically for this purpose.
2: If you were to look at the role of open source intelligence in China, you have to to recognize that first, there are multiple professional systems that are operating, particularly in the science and technology realm. Um, The intelligence services also have an important open source role, but it's a little bit different. On the S&T side, there are several organizations like the Institute of Science and Technical Information of China, ISTIC, or the China Defense Science, Science and Technical Information Center, which has a, an S&T intelligence bureau, that really have national coverage and can plug into you know, both the organizations that would benefit from having from foreign expertise that are trying to research and develop you know, items for the military or in other, you know, other strategic sectors like telecommunications, and, you know the national labs and, and universities across the system and these primarily sort of collect and catalog foreign science and technical research they provide analysis to Chinese researchers about the state-of-the-art state of the field in a particular area and they're also used to identify organizations and individuals that possess useful information and this is almost entirely open source. Whether it's searching through databases, subscribing to technical journals, uh, you know, there are separate document services that that form that functions as libraries. There are offices that collect foreign patent information and build up a, have built up massive libraries of patents to be able to describe what is going on in different countries. And it it works better than. The soviet system to acquire technology in part because it's it's directly connected to the sci- scientists and engineers who are who are trying to build something and so sometimes when these guys cross the cross the line and are doing something that deals with say export controls equipment or components you know they do look like amateurs um, because they are amateurs in terms of acquiring equipment itself, but they are professionals in terms of, of identifying information and cataloging it and indexing it and making it, making it available to the people who could benefit
0: most from it. The intelligence services like the MSS also have a role in open source collection.
2: For the intelligence services, they are, they've been substantially involved in open source collection for a very, very long time. Just because most sources that we are aware of have been recruited inside China doesn't mean that the Ministry of State Security or two PLA haven't had officers posted abroad. You know they, these people are involved in the collection of overseas media, which of course is you know before the internet and probably have a less substantial role in doing that now. They're there to attend to attend think tank events or to, ha- or to strike up conversations and to have t- to have discussions. And there's a lot of information that you can learn in D.C. that you would never, ever read in any newspaper, but you have to be on the ground and you have to see it. And so there are a lot of analysts or scholars, as they're variously identified by, by their U.S. counterparts, who operate overseas or who go overseas for trips, delegations, in some cases are visiting fellows at think tanks, in fact, nearly every major think tank that you can imagine in the United States has hosted one of these intelligence officers at one point or another. And they're also heavily involved in, in track two participation. And it's not that these people are necessarily doing anything illegal um, or something that sort of crosses the threshold of, what's, of what is typically allowed. They're simply taking advantage of the opportunities that are there. And it does provide a, a venue for identifying particular people of influence, um, who who were people who were movers and shakers sort of behind the scenes. Again, for the people who are who have lived and worked in national capitals, it's very easy to get a sense of, of the kinds of information that can be picked up just by being able to get inside the room and to talk to people over coffee. These uh, these groups, you know, the most notable of these of. This, of the open source collectors on the intelligence service side is the Ministry of State Security, China Institute of Contemporary International Relations, which some people have said, well, it's sort of affiliated with the MSS, but not really, or they've said that this was, that CICIR was the Directorate of Intelligence, sort of the principal analytic capacity of the Chinese intelligence services, or of the Ministry of State Security. But really, it's more closely related to I guess what is now called the open source enterprise, that previously known as, as the open source center, in terms of acquiring foreign language publications and using those to do analysis um, and translating those for for consumption inside China.
0: The analytic component of China's services is also unique due to heavy politicization and extensive stovepiping. Peter explains that the American idea of finished intelligence products doesn't work in understanding China's efforts.
2: This is again, a, a U.S. analog that doesn't necessarily fit in thinking about a lot of different intelligence systems. The U.S. view on, on finished intelligence is a, sort of a, as fully analyzed, all source intelligence delivered when it's ready or on demand at a regular process with regular timing is sort of it's basically unique historically and internationally there's no there's there's very little reason to think that the chinese produce intelligence in quite that fashion the first reason is that it's a heavily politicized system and if you're going to have bureaucratic production of of all sourced analytic intelligence you're going to run into the problem of of drafting analysis that f- that fits political preferences rather than then fits the the intelligence reporting itself if that makes sense so to the extent that this kind of analysis is done in the chinese system it's done at very high levels um, in the ministry of state security i've heard that this is done primarily within the vice ministers and the minister's office you know by the staff that are close to them that they've brought along with them when they move into those positions that they have you know a one or two trusted people when the need arises to say, okay what is the meaning of this particular development In that way there's you have someone with a senior enough credential and, and enough reliability to give a, a presentation of things that may or may not be comfortable for policymakers to hear. In the PLA, presumably this would also be done by the deputy chief of the General Staff, or in some of the offices connected to the central military commission. So again, at a very high level where things start coming together and in many respects, the PLA is really the only place where all source intelligence would be possible, where you have signals intelligence and open source intelligence and overt and and clandestine human intelligence and imagery intelligence all coming together under the same roof. The, the system, as far as anyone knows, is a heavily stovepiped one where MSS intelligence reporting doesn't get delivered to the PLA and vice versa. So you, in that kind of a system, you system, know, both where it's stovepiped and highly politicized, producing finished intelligence in the manner that the United States says it simply wouldn't be a, a viable option.
0: Overall, how good are China's intelligence services at what they do? How professional are they? Peter Mattis again.
2: There are no clear metrics for how to say intelligence is effective or successful, particularly over time. You know, it's very easy to draw on a single case and say, ah, they they succeeded in doing this or they failed at doing that, but that doesn't really tell you how effective the services are on sort of the day-to-day basis. So perhaps a, another way to put it would be to think, uh, you know, for example are the Chinese intelligence services capable of recruiting people that are, that will be competent in executing the mission? Um, are these people basically loyal? Are they, are they well-educated and well-trained? Um, and on that front, you would have to say that on the whole, they've done basically a good job of recruiting people who are loyal to the system. Um, the number of, the number of chinese traders is relatively low compared to say the soviet system or some of the other eastern bloc systems from the cold war and it's made them a very difficult target to crack i mean you can simply compare the number of informed books written about russian intelligence from its origins in the 1920s to the present versus the number of well well informed books written about chinese intelligence the they probably had a bit of a challenge over their history that they're recovering from now. But in the beginning, the intelligence officers in the CCP, you know, whether it was the military system or the civilian, the party system were incredibly well-trained and well-educated. In fact, many of many important people within the CCP that we know for other reasons, in fact, began their careers as intelligence officers. So, Perhaps the most famous example is Zhou Enlai. But another example that's substantially less well-known is Chen Yun, who is Deng Xiaoping's principal opponent and known for his expertise on economic planning. He was the second director of the special department. And the Cultural Revolution basically culled out a lot of expertise. There was a fight over red versus expert Essentially, that began in the 1950s in the intelligence services that continued all the way through the 70s. And because of the Cultural Revolution, the red side basically won. And so, when the Ministry of State of Security was created in 1983, there was a small group of, ex- of intelligence officers that had experience dealing with foreign targets who were still around. And they were combined with a much larger proportion of. Ministry of Public Security officials that had counter espionage and counter intelligence expertise and experience. So for probably a good chunk of time from the, since 1983 the MSS has been dominated by essentially policemen rather than people with an intelligence outlook. But I think that we can say that that's probably starting to change as Chinese students have more opportunities to go abroad or more opportunities to learn a foreign language, and there's no longer the same kind of um, intense political pressure put on the intelligence services about whether or not they are professional intelligence officers or whether they are loyal communist cadre. Um, if you were to look at it from another way, um, you know, is the intelligence system capable of supporting Beijing's policymaking and decision-making on foreign affairs? you can look at it you can look at that question in a couple of different ways one would be to say what do we know about um, the chinese sources that are recruited well if you're recruiting sources that come to china it's going to create blind spots in your in your international coverage for example people who might want to be involved in creating u.s policy toward china will almost necessarily spend time living or going back and forth between the United States and China. But the people who are interested in shaping U.S. Middle East policy probably aren't going to travel to China that much, and therefore they won't be a viable, you, know, you won't have a viable target pool to, to sort of explore and see what the opportunities are. And as China has, has had its interests expand overseas, especially in the Middle East, where it gets majority of its, of its oil. You can say that China has a, a growing stake in what U.S. policy is in the Middle East, but sort of a diminished capacity within their within their intelligence system to support that. And I think this is one of the reasons why computer network operations in cyberspace have become so prevalent coming from China, because this is the fastest way to remedy those kinds of shortfalls. Um, the second thing to say would be this kind of system of recruiting people domestically is probably better against low-hanging fruit people with without important positions um, who can travel readily back and forth but if you wanted to recruit someone from deep inside say the State Department or the Defense Department who is who is a an important decision maker who's not going to be traveling in and out of China on a regular basis, you're going to have to be able to operate overseas in a manner that makes them feel safe. Because if someone's committing treason, they're putting their lives in, in intelligence officer's hands. But if you don't have a lot of experience operating overseas, or in China's case, you kill off a lot of those people so that they can't train the next generation, You you have to slowly build up that expertise again. And we're probably at the point where they're slowly building it up again. On on the counterintelligence and counterespionage side, you would have to say that the Chinese have been fairly good. You know, They're able to make cases. They're able to, to find people who are spying for the West or for Taiwan. So their investigatory resources are clearly strong. In the West, there's kind of a saying that it takes a spy to catch a spy. But that is in, in, mostly a product of of Western legal systems and sort of the restrictions on investigations. Um, closed systems have done a better job historically being able to do it without a spy on the other side. Because if they get even a little thread of, of something to look at, they can keep pulling and they can keep pulling and they can keep pulling, and they will and they will identify someone. You know, so it was what was identified on Chinese National Security Day, a, a rocket engineer named Huang Yu who was executed a couple of years ago, who provided 150,000 documents in exchange for $700,000 to some foreign intelligence organization that wasn't identified. You know, the people who were after those documents and gave him the means to clandestinely transfer 150,000 documents out of China they were probably a relatively sophisticated intelligence service, but still... Over time, and given the opportunity, this system is able to to neutralize those those leaks of material. And one of the major reasons why China's internal security spending is has surpassed its military spending is because of all of the technical surveillance resources that have gone in into Beijing and other major cities to track license plates, to track um, ticketing, you know, for airplanes, for trains. Um, microphones inside taxis, and all sorts of others of uh, technical gadgetry to be able to track and find and see what people are doing, particularly as they move across cities and then across jurisdictions. It's sort of an overarching assessment of the Chinese intelligence services. In the last, say, 30 or 40 years, China has not it's been given a, a pride of place alongside, say, a Russia or a Cuba in terms of its threat to the United States or, or some other Western countries, but it's never been because of operational sophistication. It's been the scope, scale, and potential impact of Chinese intelligence operation. This is what drove perceptions of the threat. But what we're seeing now in the last decade is evidence of, call it, mounting sophistication. You know, for example we see Chinese intelligence officers collecting phone numbers and email and other forms of contact information that's going to be fed back into the signals intelligence collection system Um, one of the one of the elements of the of the hack of Google in 2010 was to try to find the the FISA warrants or the accounts that had a FISA warrant on them in Gmail to see who was being to who to see who is being looked at um, or more recently there's the effort to the successful effort to get all of the office of personnel management data about people who have applied to work in national security positions in the United States as well as their foreign national contacts this essentially creates an index now for the Chinese to operate off of in terms of finding people who would be of interest in, and possible recruits it's the integration of, of human intelligence and signals intelligence coming together. And on the human side you can say um, you know that it's not just someone under cover as a Xinhua journalist or as a diplomat who's who is conducting operations or someone from an unnamed office of the Shanghai municipal government. But in one case there was a there was a Chinese intelligence officer with legitimate Australian citizenship papers who was handling a Taiwanese source in Thailand. In every way, she was an Australian citizen. But she was also a Chinese intelligence officer who was handling a a very sensitive source.
0: Chris Johnson points out that China's intel services are improving, but emphasizes their connection to the Chinese Communist Party limits their efficacy.
1: Yeah, I think they're emerging as as quite professional. I think one of the challenges that they face, though, is this whole issue of the party's role uh, and and their their sort of status as tools of the party, um, rather than independent institutions like they would be in Western or other foreign systems. And that creates hard limits, I think, um, on their professionalism, primarily because the environment is heavily politicized uh, within the intelligence services. You know, in many countries, the uh, the intelligence services are politicized, but I think especially so in China. Um, we've seen historically the intelligence services be uh, an area where factional inviting over control of key resources, you know, inside the system. Can play a big role uh, for example some of the intelligence services do play a domestic eavesdropping role you know things like this so they could be very sensitive uh, in, inside the system but in terms of their operational art if you will and tradecraft obviously they're getting better and better they've moved from um, a, a model that was sort of heavily emphasizing relying on expatriate Chinese you know playing to their concerns uh, of serving the motherland or threatening their family members that might still uh, be living in China to some pretty sophisticated models. Uh, You know, we've seen in recent cases just in the U.S. um, operations whereby they were uh, acting under false pretenses, uh, perhaps pretending to be a Taiwan service, you know, these sort of things. So we're seeing their operational tradecraft and art develop um, over the years, and that trend, I think, will continue.
0: In counterintelligence areas, closed systems have certain advantages over open systems. This affects how China spies.
2: The other way to to say that that the quality of Chinese operations is improving is that previous attempts by the Chinese intelligence services to feed people that they had recruited into the U.S. defense and intelligence community more or less went unprosecuted through the 80s and 1990s and the early 2000s. Um, And it was not until the June 2010 arrest of a young guy named Glenn Duffy Shriver who'd been paid $70,000 by Chinese intelligence services to to apply to the State Department and the CIA, that someone was sort of publicly arrested and, and I believe he pled guilty to the charges and spent some time in prison as a result of their relationship with Chinese intelligence. In the past, it seemed better simply to say, well, this person never had a chance of getting in, so it's not worth prosecuting, it's just push this person off to the side red flag them and make sure they never can work in a, in these kinds of positions but one of the reasons why why there was there was probably an arrest in 2010 was because this was a person who who could have worked and who was going to who could have gotten into a position at the state department or CIA and that it was serious enough that that it warranted prosecution so again, there were previous attempts that weren't successful, that were easily identified, and people who never really had a chance of working in the U.S. government to begin with, then it became you know, much more serious over time.
0: Understanding China's intelligence services is a complex endeavor. Here with the CSIS Asia program, we'll continue to keep an eye on China's efforts to restructure its security apparatus and track the impact of China's espionage operations around the world we plan to share a second episode that tackles China's cyber operations and industrial espionage in the near future. That's our show. Thanks to CSIS Freeman Chair in China Studies, Chris Johnson, for his insights in framing this topic and in leadership's thinking. Very special thanks to Peter Mattis of the Jamestown Foundation for sharing his unique and in-depth knowledge and helping to understand China's intelligence services. The audio for this podcast was edited by Lauren Abuali. The podcast was written and produced by Jeffrey Bean. To learn more, visit our new look, CSIS.org and kajadasia.com. You can follow our Asia programs on Twitter and subscribe to the podcast via iTunes, IRSS, email, or also on CSIS.org. Also, be sure to check out the new China Power podcast. I'm Will Coulson. Thanks for listening.